So we're sitting down with the innovators, middle managers to CEOs who are on the front lines of digital transformation to see how they did it and what they learned. That's the important thing with change, right? Is that whether you're making change or adjusting to change, it's really about focusing on the people. So join us as we uncover gritty perspectives on turnaround jobs, prioritization, road mapping, user behavior insights, and scaling organizations. Our guest today is Rob Tedesco. He spearheaded the digital transformation of Subway, the world's largest restaurant chain. You get to hear about the challenge of getting calories into digital menus and what it's like to live between a fast-moving non-digital business and a digital transformation challenge. Lots of good info in here, so let's get into it. Our guest today is Rob Tedesco. He's a digital strategist and he built the digital organization at Subway. Welcome, Rob. Hey, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Our, our, the theme that we're on now is really thinking about transformation and turnaround, some real life stories of people who've gone through this. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your experience at Subway. Yeah, I mean, happy to. Um, I joined Subway in 2017. Um, and at that time, the brand was, you know, committed to uh, digital transformation, right? So, you know, I think within the category of QSR, you might identify a sub- subcategory of, of coffee and brands like Starbucks and, and Dunkin' were really pushing kind of consumer behavior in the category towards like ordering ahead and mobile-centric rewards programs and things like that. And I think Subway perceived the need to to close that gap and to make some investments that were forward-looking um, to help do those things and more um, in the domain of digital. When you got there, what did you find? You know, it, it, Subway had a digital transformation ahead of it. And, you know, that was clear. The, the other challenge, I think, with Subway was that it had kind of other non-digital transformations occurring simultaneously, right? So... If you think about Subway as a brand, there's, you know, um, well, at least in, in 2017, there were somewhere around 44,000 locations globally. It's the largest restaurant brand in the world. And every single one of those is franchises. So for, for you know, the better part of 50 years, you're talking about an organization that really its headquarters, its kind of central personnel, their core competence and organization structure and talent and everything, technology, everything was kind of built around how to run a franchising company. Right, how to open franchises, how to keep you know franchisees um, well serviced, and things like that. So the focus of the of the corporate office was mostly on its franchisees and not necessarily on its guests. They more or less kind of abdicated that responsibility to the franchisee community. And so when you're trying to govern digital and the digital experience, which is very guest focused, it's kind of you kind of have to transform the brand not just from you know retail to digital, which is a gap that most brands in retail transformation have to cross, but from like franchise-oriented to guest-oriented to digital, which is kind of a chasm. And Subway also introduced a lot of new, you know, operational process, supply chain changes, menu changes, right? Introducing new food items. So it's just, it was like, you know, like a lot at once. So that's, that's what we found you know, was was digital was a, a critical priority and it went well invested and, you know, tons of work to do and giant roadmap and teams to build and, you know, partnerships to execute and things like that. But that was only like one kind of, you know, song in the opera, so to speak. Uh, so it was, there was a lot going on. Well, do, do you have, I'm curious, because I don't think people think Subway and digital 
together uh, as a as a as a even having a digital strategy, much less understanding a digital transformation in the context of uh, you know a, a sandwich shop that we all know. And so, like, how did how did they come to prioritize that digital transformation as a, as an aspect of their own strategy? I'm I'm curious about that. Well, you know, for one thing, I think there's there's always this fear, you know, with a brand that's been around for a long time that, you know, you need to kind of recruit a new generation of guests and a new generation of fans, right? And so I think in some ways, I think, as, you know, the leadership mindset was one of like, we need to attract millennials and therefore we need a mobile app, right? And so there's kind of <laughs> that like Occam, Occam's razor view of digital, right? Which is like, you know, there's some truth in that, but, it, you know, it, it's also kind of a, a, you know, a much bigger kind of longer term you know, um, initiative than just building a mobile app to attract millennials, right? But, but I think that's part of it. It was, hey, you know, we want to make sure that we're positioning our brand to engage, you know, the next generations and all the channels that they want to engage in. And, and like I said, kind of previously, you know, I think the, the, the forefathers of digital and QSR, you know, which I, I regard mostly as coffee brands, you know, kind of set the, the uh, tone for consumer expectations kind of in the category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and QSR is... quick serve restaurant. Yes, sorry, I um, take oh, for granted well my, my category knowledge. Thank you, Jess. Yeah, QSR is quick serve restaurant, which is kind of, you know, it's become like a euphemism for fast food. Um, you know, I think the category prefers that label because it sounds a little bit nicer. But you know, so and, and and within QSR, when I say QSR, I really mean food food service and restaurants. I mean, it's like you know, it's, you could really envision that category more broadly to include kind of the you know the new fast casual segment that's emerged over the past 15, 20 years, and even you know more casual or fine dining, which also have their own kind of digital journeys ahead of them. Given your description of 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 the the chasm, um, and then uh, the space's own struggle with like what does it mean to be digital, anyways, and being caught between that and then and then. Uh, um, shifting expectations on the part of the clientele, what, what do you think some of the most critical factors are to success in a digital strategy in that context? Patience and time and leadership buy-in. I mean, like it, it, it truly, like if, if your CEO is not leading your digital transformation, I, I find it hard to believe that it would be, you know, as successful as it could possibly be. I mean, this really has to, because, you know, in, in my, you know, in my experience, Digital in a silo is is kind of silly, right? I mean, it's like you digital is, is about all the touch points and all the departments, right? So you need your operations team making sure that they're fulfilling the online orders with priority. You know, you need to be you need your marketing team focused on targeting and building audiences around your digital guests, right? You need your technology organization focused on those technologies which are going to you know help support the, the the digital guest experience, right? So. It's fundamentally cross-functional and multifaceted, and therefore, you, you need kind of leadership to say this is a priority. All of you have important things to do in all your departments, but like this is either the top of the list or forward or near the top because it requires so much cross-functional collaboration. Mm-hmm. I know some of what you know in talking to people in in retail and restaurants that I've run into in the last couple months. One of the things I think that that made it really hard for them early on was misaligned goals and these kind of silo approaches where you would have your traditional brick and mortar group and then your digital group off the side. And they weren't necessary. They had separate reporting, separate functions and and goals. And so it kind of set them against each other. Did you experience that or have you seen that in the broader landscape? I have, you know, within Subway and outside. And I think, you know, what I would say is like, 
digital is a competence, not a department, right? Like that would be the thesis statement, right? And, th- and therefore, like it isn't this team that you put together and you worry about its reporting structure. You need people who understand digital in all the departments, right? And the more that you start to view it in that cross-functional way, the more the silos naturally get broken down because you've got kind of people everywhere with that mindset, right? You know, absent that, you know, you're kind of in for the lifelong custody battle, which I very, you know, very intimately experienced at Subway of like, who's my mommy? Is it marketing or is it technology? Like, you know, what, you know, which, which, which parent am I spending the weekend with? You know, where's my solid line structure? Where's my dotted line structure? And like, you know, like that. Like every brand lives that. I mean, it's it's totally real, you know. Like, and because it's like truly to digital competence is you know is a hybrid skill set of like marketing and technology and all these disciplines. And so I think leadership teams and organizations have the the struggle, and the struggle is real. Of like, where do we put this? And it takes time for them. You know, they start with maybe a group of people in a team, but then they kind of realize that they're peppering kind of the skills around the organization, and then all of a sudden, I think they wake up and realize, wait a minute. The reporting structure is like not the challenge. It's the goal setting at the leadership level and having the talent to execute it. And then the rest of it kind of doesn't matter. So so within that, like what are some of the the key learnings um, or or mistakes or missteps that that you've either perpetrated yourself or or been on the receiving end of? <laughs> yeah. Um all the all the above, Scott, you know, so you know, like I'm, you know, I'm I'm, I'm no saint and I've we made it, we made tons of mistakes and you, you kind of have to learn as you go in these transformations. I mean, you know, what I would, what I would say is, you know, the biggest lesson learned for me is you, you have to be careful not to institute like a digital augmentation and think of it as a digital transformation. Well, what do I mean when I say that? Well, like a brand who sticks a mobile app out there and co- checks the box and says, you know, we're done with our digital transformation. You know, you've added a piece of technology, right? And sometimes, you know, brands going through these transformations at a few pieces of technology. It's, you know, mobile ordering and web ordering, or maybe they both have, maybe they have a rewards program too. That's kind of digital and they engage the guests that way. Those things are good. You need them, right? That's like the periphery of your consumer experience, right? But without modernizing the core technology that exists to support these new channels, you're unlikely to be able to evolve the channels in a way that's truly going to give you competitive parity with your, the other brands that you're competing with, with new features and functionality, truly delight your guests and they engage in those channels. You kind of get stuck stuck with the limitations of your legacy, whether it's legacy point of sale or legacy data or legacy, like, you know, product inventory management technology, like, and those limitations, again, that struggle is really real too. So I think at Subway, you know, there was kind of this, you, you know, outside in transformation that we went on, which was like, do, do the fun, fun digital marketing stuff, glom on pieces of technology, rebuild the front end, and then we'll go back and fix the core with the jackhammer. That's a really messy construction project, right? Like, you, you know, so to the extent possible, to the extent that you have, again, that leadership alignment and the commitment to kind of take your time, start from the inside out, rebuild the, the, your kind of core with a digital experience in mind, it may take you longer to get there. But once you get there, you'll be able to move so much faster. So it's like, you know, do you want to be the brand that takes step one and takes step one faster, but then by the time you get to step 10, you're way behind? Or do you want to be the brand that maybe isn't so fast getting to step one and step two, but by the time you get to step six and seven, the slope is just so downward facing that you're able to really kind of to go from there. So that that's, that's I think, the conundrum that a lot of brands, you know, find themselves in whether they know it or not right now. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's funny. There's so many parallels to to how we build products um, at, here at Three Pillar, and and we 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 have principles to try to help guide you on that. How much pushing can you do uh, before you need pulling to happen? How do you get quick to value? Start the value validation, the learning process, get the insights, find those opportunities that maybe when you start the journey you don't know about, right? And it's uh, but how to do that is uh, is incredibly vexing. For sure, and you know everyone wants the quick wins too, right? You know, so there, you just can't let the quick wins define you, and it it's challenging because listen, I come from a, pop, a product background and from a you know in, innovation entrepreneurship background, and so I'm all about lean and MVP and you know figuring out how to fail fast, but like failing fast with a broken engine just results in long-term failure, right? So it's one of these balances that's really tricky um, and, and, and requires a certain finesse of your kind of middle management layer when they're engaging with senior leadership. That's like this constant begging for patience, right? Because you need it. I think that's where people get stuck because a lot of times we've done mobile development for a lot of brands and retail and financial services and healthcare and like, and they come and it's like, okay, we're gonna, you're going to do this and you're going to make the app. And it's like, well, okay. But just realize the app on your phone is actually the easiest part and the least expensive. But if we don't have the rest of these things set up, that's where you're going to spend more time. That's where you're spending a heck yeah. of a lot more money. And that's what's going to enable all the other things that you have. But I think they get kind of stuck. And then there's this organizational unwillingness to engage there, or frankly, they they did some big digital transformation with some partner and gave them a whole lot of money mm. and didn't end up with anything. Yeah. Not See, I've seen that FYI. movie too. It, yeah, no, no, I definitely <laughs> have seen that. That, that, that movie has been, you know, a, a, a unfortunately pretty well shared around the industry. It, 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 it's tricky. It's really, it's really one of these things that's, that's super tricky to get right. Um, the other, the other challenging factor, frankly, is that like, you know, senior most leadership, again, whose, whose buy-in is, is critical and primary to a successful outcome in this area may not be long-term incentivized. I mean, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like the, the challenge we have with politicians in America too. It's like, they are more interested in their reelection than they are in like a long-term health of the nation, right? Like, and I, and I feel like we have a lot of those similar dynamics where it's like to do digital transformation, right? You really need to play the long game. And I'm not so sure that, you know, particularly if the brand's in decline, like it's like they say in baseball, managers are fired to be hired. Like, you know, you got leadership that comes in and it's like, well, turn, turn marketing around in one year or the CMO is out. I think the average lifespan of a CMO is like you know, 18 months. How are you going to, how are you playing the long game in that, in that way? Right. So there's that, there's constant tension in that area. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, and that's one of those sneaky insights, I think, in terms of like how incentives are aligned, because that, that'll absolutely impact your ability to build coalition, um, around the kind of transformation you're trying to accomplish and what your, what frankly your time horizon is for ROI. That's a, that's, a, that's interesting. Just to get into, I want to get into one of your stories around um, uh, some of the more interesting challenges that you faced uh, on on your journey, and just and, and kind of pick apart one of one of those stories and how you how you navigated through it. Sure. Um, well, gosh, I mean, there's 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 many that we could pick from this this <laughs> lovely uh, toy chest of, of challenges. I mean, I'd say one of the most challenging one was the ones was the um, the aforementioned evolution of Subway's menu and product offerings at the same mm-hmm. you know, simul- contempor- contemporaneously with its digital transformation. So, like as an example, one of the things that Subway tried to do was introduce new food that was maybe more flavor forward, 
you know, maybe elicited a higher price point, you know, kind of the more like decadent, you know, expensive, like sandwich, right? As I mentioned, like some of some of the core technology at Subway, like around its inventory management products, information management, menu management, where, where you know, corporate or its franchisees would program, here's the ingredients, here's the price, here's the calories. Digital channels need to understand and show calories for legal reasons, right, of all the ingredients. A lot of that technology was built pre-e-commerce and pre-digital, mm. right? So like... I'm using calories as an example, but there's a million other things, legal disclaimers, you know, imagery, like, you know, there's all these other things that you need in the digital domain that you didn't need when it was just a point of sale and a face-to-face experience, right? So I think, you know, we're trying, here we are trying to like, you know, it's like the big dig in Boston and we're, we're jackhammering kind of building all this new fancy tech for, you know, for online ordering and mobile ordering and rewards and personalization and all this amazing stuff. And it's like, you know, we're going to introduce a new sandwich in six weeks. And it's like, oh, well, it takes like four months for all of the hard coding and dev to happen and all those underlying systems to make that sandwich actually show up so that it's ready to be consumed by the mobile app. Right. Um, wow. So there's this constant kind of like, you know, having to go backwards to fix the past so that you can leap forwards and, and, and keep up with the rest of the organization while you're doing it. So that was, I mean, that's just kind of one anecdote and there's, there's a million more, but that was, hmm. that was the biggest struggle was like the, you know, truly the core not being ready for digital. And then, and then trying to, you know, massage and explain with, you know, the stakeholder community that like may, may not be the mobile app's fault that the mobile app isn't showing the calories the right way, so to speak. Right. You know what I mean? That's coming from this other thing that we did, that someone chose not to upgrade, right? So, so that kind of a thing is that gives you like a, a halfway decent good, picture. Good luck explaining to the franchisee why the calories aren't showing up right. They're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Can't you just fix the calories? Right, <laughs> exactly. And, and for the record, the calories were always correct. Every time, never wrong. <laughs> um, but, but you know, but the human but capital there, took to make sure it was really that hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and you make a great point, Scott, about the franchisees because it's like they all they all love digital. They all want to go faster. They all they all totally support it. But there's this you know kind of why can't why can't you just make it work? Like phenomenon which which how can you blame them? Like it's you know they don't you know the, the Google can do it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or like, you know, what about, you know, Sweetgreen or some other like digitally native brand that like just drops an iPad into their restaurant and like it comes out of the box with e-com and like everything was kind of built digitally native from scratch. It's like, well, gosh, you know, you didn't open a Sweetgreen, dude. <laughs> you opened the subway. It's like, <laughs> that, that tech's 50 years old. Like, you know, there's work to do here, man. <laughs> oh, that's so, it's so real. I, I can, I can see all this in Technicolor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, we've all seen this movie before too. But I want to I want to go forward a little bit because I think we're in a really unique game-changing kind of moment for these brands because you know, just the Scott and I live in the same town, but just the small businesses around they, you know, they went from being um, you know, you go into the store to they need curbless and contactless and and, you know, all of these, just even the small brands and the big ones have all had to go through tremendous transformation. I know you're doing some consulting these days. So what are you seeing? Yeah. Um, all of the above. Right. And like, you know, it's, it's even sort of acutely painful to watch some of my favorite local fine dining, you know, establishments, which are just one offs. Right figured out how to navigate all this. They didn't need online ordering. That's not their game. You know, takeout isn't really their experience. They're going there. It's a, that's the experience is to go into the restaurant and be waited on. Right. 
so that it's been it's been tough to watch. I think some of them have done a better job than others, and I think you know fine dining has a much you know as a as a segment within kind of restaurant has a much much shorter term need to do this transformation, and then I feel like it kind of goes away. The, the the rest of the segments, you know, like where 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 the food holds up well for delivery, or you're willing, you're just as willing to eat it at home or pick it up and eat it in a park or or at the office or whatever, like. It's really just, you know, COVID has been kind of an accelerant, right, of a very long, very slow march towards, you know, um, more, you know, percentage e-commerce sales growing and figuring out how to retain those guests, right? And I think, Jess, that, that's the, probably the biggest point I would make from what I'm seeing as I'm talking to brands out there now is so many of them are focused on how can we sell online? How can we stand up curbside? How can we stand up third-party delivery so that we're showing up on Uber Eats and Grubhub or whatever else it is, right? good things to do, you know, um, some better than others, like, you know, own channel e-commerce and selling directly is, is really powerful because you capture the customer data in that experience, right? If someone places an order directly through you, you get their email address, their phone number, you can market to them. And I think that that's what I'm, that, that's really kind of the, the point that I'm trying to drive home is guests used to come into your restaurant and sit down and maybe they paid with cash or a credit card, but you didn't really quote unquote know them. Now it's like for, 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 for short-term reasons, they can't. So they're shifting online where you do know them. And, you know, it, it's great that you're there and able to capture that kind of channel switch into the online channel now. But the brands that are going to win, the retailers and restaurant brands that are going to win in the long term, no matter how big or small they are, are the ones that figure out how to, how to um, action the customer data they get from those channels to try to incentivize people to come back more frequently, spend more, right? So I think the contactless and e-commerce and mobile ordering and delivery and curbside are necessary short-term kind of phenomenon. But I, I, w- I would be encouraging restaurants and brands, you know, retail brands to think more long-term around how do, I, how do I keep those customers, not just service them now, but how do I incentivize them to come back? And there's a whole you know, swath of marketing technology that is kind of required as table stakes to, to do that job well. That's insightful. Well, thank you, Scott. Yeah, COVID is <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not, because I, that wasn't the direction that I thought you would go with, you know, like kind of we get the platitude of leveraging data, you know, company, digital companies or even offline companies will will monetize their data in unique ways and find new ways to extract value. But, you know, I'm struck by thinking even for myself, like I order the same Subway sandwich almost every time. When I go, and uh, and and it would be nice. I mean, you could bring the convenience factor of that way down, uh, or way up. The convenience up, um, and and my my basically effort to get to that sandwich could go down if it was digitally enabled. And so I, I just I I'm struck by thinking about that, and and in, in just in Subway's context, and obviously that that applies to other other businesses. You can carry that over to to other businesses in a similar situation. Yeah. For sure, you know when when you when you Scott come into my restaurant and you order the same thing all the time without engaging in a digital channel, it's up to the staff to know you and to know what you like and to treat you well, right? And the staff aren't robots, and they they're not always great at doing their jobs. They're pressured. They have other priorities. They forget. You know. You know. Maybe they're not people persons or whatever. Whatever it is, right? When a brand knows you digitally, it knows what you like. And, you know, what you're into and it gets better at learning that over time. And robots don't forget to do things like offer you upsell or try and interest you in an item that maybe is adjacent to something that you have demonstrated you like to try and increase your ticket, right? So that 
I think that's kind of, you know, the way the, 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 the restaurant technologist digital person would kind of look at what you just said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating. Plus, you know, when people are trying to keep their food costs down because their revenue's lower, they can manage, you know, make their decisions. And I've seen a lot of people go to like family style, like uh, limited menu, family style, you know, different different segments. But I, I think what's in, I, I'm also in the camp of COVID-19 as an accelerant. Uh, everything we're seeing in um, the different industries that we're in is these things were happening, but now they're happening. Everything's happening faster from work from home, deliver to yep. home, contactless, collaboration, experience changing and events and all those. They're all having to you know, do three or four years of transformation in a couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. And, and thank, thank heaven for it. Right. I mean, it's one of those silver linings to this whole thing, because I think everyone, you know, the, the, the people who do keep their head above water and are able to kind of suffer through that transition are going to be happy for it later, but they, but, um, but not without a long-term understanding of the value of customer data in a way that isn't a platitude, right. In a way that where they are actioning on it to get people to drive that frequency mm-hmm. and check or whatever, it, whatever behavior it is they're looking to elicit. Yeah. And I see a lot of companies moving into that space of like, you need to own your data. What do you do with it? How do you make that easy for somebody in in small business? And then how do you do that without, without getting yourself into a whole heck of a tr- lot of trouble because you have customer data, which is a whole new ball game for a lot of people. For sure. And, you know, let's face it, the landscape of partners that can help you with like building a rewards program or doing email marketing or doing mobile marketing or doing, you know, online media buying, whatever it is, is super vast, highly fragmented and very difficult for these brands to navigate. Right. So like, I think the fragmentation of the provider side of the industry just exacerbates this problem because people just don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, which is, you know, a problem I see a lot of brands running into. Um, and you know, the truth is there are better places to start than, than, you know, and it just takes kind of the time and the experience to understand what those are. What, what, I'm curious, what, what are those places? Because well, you have some, some experience trying to navigate that field. So, Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it's a, it, it, the answer is it depends, right? I mean, because you've got small players, medium-sized players, and enterprises, right? And they're all, they all find themselves in different predicaments, right, within this digital transformation domain, right? The, the big ones are coping with the aforementioned technical debt of, you know, legacy technology and the difficulty of pivoting operations with, you know, massive cruise ship size, you know, um, like people inside of its organization. So that playbook looks a little different. I think that that playbook looks a lot like the one we were talking about before with, you have to take your time to do the core transformation right first, right? Inside the, 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 the middle and the, and the bottom of the market, you know, my, my, my point, my point of view, Scott would be to try and find those partners that can help you on the journey that aren't wed to like one system, one stack, on the one hand, you know, for implementing like e-commerce or, or loyalty or whatever it is you're trying to do, but also aren't going to just put in a patchwork of like one-off solutions, right? So there's, you know, I, you know, my point of view is work with the partners that can help you navigate that landscape for you on your behalf, right? And, and build an ecosystem that comes kind of integrated a little bit out of the gate, right? You know what I mean? In other words, your e-com platform has kind of loyalty capability baked into it is a much easier path to climbing that mountain than like having two different partners and building them from scratch and making them talk to each other. Like that's just a generic version of, of that kind of example, but I hope that resonates. 
Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. We talk about, um, you know, our role as a trusted advisor guiding clients through technology choices of various types, whether it's tooling or frameworks. It can be at any any altitude of technology. Um, but it makes a lot of sense if you have someone who's been there, done that, and can be a, a, a tool agnostic advisor on. You're going to get more value out of this than that. Um, that 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 makes a lot of sense. And it's it's not obvious, I think, for a lot of organizations to think about hiring a trusted advisor. That can that can help them with those choices. They 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 tend to think they need to choose the tool and then and then pick the one that's going to help them implement, as if execution is the most important part. So I think there's there's an insight in there that that um, can benefit a lot of people. Very well said. I agree, Scott. So we have some standard questions for every guest as we come to the end of our time, but I'm going to ask one before I do that, which is how much subway have you eaten? Oh, oh um, it, enough. Um, you know, we, so, 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 you know, if, yeah, um, so one of the great benefits of working at Subway is that they offer you breakfast and lunch every day on campus, right? So, you know, uh, I, I wasn't always available to, um, to do that because, you know, meeting schedules and otherwise, and sometimes you just have to skip meals. But when I did eat, I ate Subway because I didn't have time to leave campus. So, when you eat the, you know, the same thing substantially every day for three years, um, you get your, you, it doesn't matter how good or what it is, you get you kind of get your fill of it, um, you know. But my my kids like it, right? Like so, they I still get you know my my six year old going on seven who is like if he if he passes one he wants to stop and get a sandwich and a cookie or whatever, you know what I mean? So I don't I don't think we'll ever be done, done. But you know, um, I, it was like it was it was o- overload for a little while there and. You know, it's you know, whatever you can you can say what you want about the product, but like you know, hey, it's it's not fried, like, and the vegetables are fresh, and you know, if you're a vegetarian or whatever, there's lots of choices. So like, in terms of like being forced to eat, there's a fair amount of variety. In terms of like girls being forced to eat the same thing every day, you can actually kind of have a lot of fun, and it's pretty healthy. So that that was that was a nice little benefit. So what's the one thing you always look for a team that tells you if it's healthy or in trouble? That's one of the sorry, that's like, another standard question. Oh yeah, no, you're good. Um, yeah, you know, I get nervous when I see factions or like cliques forming. So, you know, in larger organizations, this is more of a phenomenon than it is in smaller ones. But people who kind of t- like isolate, segregate, keep their own opinion for themselves, maybe disagree with the rest of the organization and kind of start to splinter off and go in their other direction. Like that's a major problem. You know, given the need for cross-functional alignment, especially in a digital transformation where kind of the whole organization has to make leaps forward at the same time in the same direction. If you got, you know, kind of the, the three-legged race and one leg is going left, that, that's, you know, you're going to fall, <laughs> right? Um, so I look, out, I look out for any kind of, you know, insular behavior, factions, cliques, and people who just don't enjoy over-communicating, like, because that, that you have to over-communicate and share your progress and plans and ideas with people. That's a that's a really good point, and, and it's interesting. You know, as humans, I think we always have to have an us and a them. But when we start to draw that line internally, uh, that definitely undermines our ability to to take on the real them, which is the competition or or uh, or a positive mission like serving serving our customers. Um, oh, for for sure, Scott. And you know, there were days in Subway where it felt like us versus them inside the company, and you know, you know, you're not winning then for yeah. sure. That's we, a great point. We've all experienced that, so yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's really. <laughs> yep. The other question we like to ask is what piece of technology, analog, software, or hardware can you not live without? And don't say your fault. No, or Amazon, right? I mean, that's like super boring. <laughs> I thought about this question for like, you know, a solid three minutes. It's really, those are the two things I use. 
<laughs> really struggle to come up with an answer. I do love the AirPods. I find them to be very convenient. That's a nice piece of technology. You know, if you can consider my guitar stuff technology, I love I love electric guitar. So like, it has there's circuitry okay. involved in the amplifier. Like, does that count? Like that that's yeah. kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Drop. The, Definitely technology. The more interesting answers. Yeah, somebody said indoor plumbing. <laughs> um, and uh, the look on your face. Our, our so I'll tell you what. In terms of like you know day to day to day consumer tech, like I'm a huge fan of the Apple TV. You know, versus like a, a Roku or a Kindle Fire or whatever, or you know, like um, you know whatever they call like the smart TVs with the apps built in or whatever. Like I find the Apple TV yeah. UI to just be so natural and slick that I don't think I could ever go with another comparable device. That's a, that's a, that's a nice one. Nice. Well, well, thank you so much, Rob. Really appreciate the time. Super useful information for anyone who is going through a transformation. So thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for sharing your yeah, insights. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com or visit threepillarglobal.com. Three